0: Weirdo bookworms, unite.
1: We want to share our love of genre fiction with you.
0: Some readers out there may look down on you for your love of horror, sci-fi, and fantasy, but not us.
1: So stop by as we discuss what we've been reading.
0: Hi, Genre Junkies. This is Sandra. And this is Scott. And welcome to another installment of Genre Junkies. Tonight we are discussing a highly highly anticipated fantasy
1: conclusion call it call this a celebratory episode call it uh, a wake we uh
0: don't we... be don't be sad that it's over be happy that it happened
1: yeah okay I, i'm going to be very sad
0: i'm going to be very sad I'll be i'm going to be sad for sad. a long time um of course we're talking about five dark fates Kendara blake's um conclusion to a series the you and i and um amanda have loved so much Three Dark Crown's saga. And it's coming to a close. The sun is setting on this story. These characters are queens and they're friends and foes. This is horrible.
1: It's... (laughs) It really is difficult. This is going to be a little bit of a different episode because a lot of you have experienced this series with us and some of you have not, Yes, but we're going to talk about the story thus far, get you prepared to say goodbye to our favorite queens of Fenburn, um... I'm just going to go ahead and say right now, uh, you know, our scores are up in the air. You all know how much we love the, this series, but I'm going to say this book was a struggle for me. What? So now this is not at all Like in a good way? Oh yeah, in a good way. I plowed through this book for a good portion of it. And then about two thirds of the way through, I closed the book- and I just, I couldn't bring myself to finish it.
0: I think in the spoiler sections, we will address what that part was yes. that made you stop.
1: But even even without the events of the book itself, I was not prepared for this series to end. I love it so much. It's yeah. It means so much to me. And I just, I knew when I picked up the book again, Uh, after that point, I knew that would be probably the last time I knew that that would be the point when I would finish it and it would be over and it would be done. And it it was really hard for me. I can't, I think the last time that I had this experience with a book was the final book of Harry Potter. Just, I, I wasn't ready for it to be over.
0: I relate very strongly to that. Um, I absolutely loved this series. I adored this series. It means a lot to me as well. Um, It it just fits in so much of my ideology of, you know, kind of like in a fantasy world, how I kind of sort of wish things were. Like if I had to pick a fantasy world to live in, there's like, I can see myself fitting into a lot of facets of Fenburn. Now, obviously, we're not going to spoil this book until the spoiler section, which will warn you about but um i mean at this point like hello like you have to have read the other books in the series to even be interested so i guess light spoilers for the rest of the books you know this is a story of a uh, matriarchy on a goddess worshiping island called fenburn there are three major factions on this island there is the elementals which control the elements, and that's where Queen Mirabella comes from. There is the naturalists, which work with the natural world and plants and uh, animals, particularly. They have kind of like their animal familiar along with them. And then there is also the poisoners, which are my people, which are the healers but also the killers and they have an affinity for working with potions and poisons and concoctions and uh they're a little wicked just a little little wicked they're a little dark yeah they're a little dark and um kind of like bougie and ornate and um Okay, fine. I'll stop talking about the poisoners. We're the best people. Uh now there is a couple other types one can be, and we've learned about it thus far in the book, but those are the three like big ones. You can also be war gifted, which is obviously you have an affinity for fighting. And, and strength. telekinesis, yeah. And strength. Yeah. yeah. And then you can also be an oracle which there's like four oracles left
1: there's not many yeah a seer
0: because they are typically drowned at birth because they're thought to have this horrible you know gift which is actually a curse so at this point in the book we have our group of gals they um have not done what they're supposed to do which is fight till the last girl uh they're all three still alive But, you know, we got my poor Katarine, which I, can I just call her Kat? Because that is hard for me to say that name. I can say it in my head, but I can't, I can't like say it out loud.
1: Yeah, I I don't, I don't know if I can, if I say Katarine in my head either. But yeah, Kat's fine. So we have Kat, who is just
0: full of ghostly queens. I've gone on record as saying she is a clown car full of uh, ghosts. She's just packed packed to the brim with ghosts, and uh, they call her the Undead Queen. But people don't even know the half of it. There's very few people that know that she's full of these queens that were the ones that died at the hands of their sisters.
1: Yeah, the whole tw- the whole hook of the series is that there are three triplets that are born. Uh, every generation of the queen and each one has a different gift and they are destined to fight each other to the death till there is one queen who will rule and give birth to the next set of triplets.
0: So at this point in the book, we got the dead queens over here, then we got some other dead queens that are going on too. They're uh, <laughs> kind of in the mist. And then there's Queen Ilian who likes to make appearances in Arsinoe's dreams and shows Arsinoe like things from the past to kind of help them with the future. And then there's another queen on top of that, which is of course Jules, who is a naturalist who we've had since the beginning. That's um Arsinoe's like little protector. Her BFF, her and her cougar Camden. Uh, but now Jules was born Legion cursed, where she has multiple gifts. And in this case, she's a naturalist and war gifted. And she's kind of really supposed to be the queen
1: yeah there's there's been there's been a prophecy that the that a legion cursed queen will either be the 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 salvation of fenburn or the destruction of fenburn right so that's kind of the problem with oracle with oracle uh gift is that you don't necessarily know which direction that's gonna go
0: and we've lost some friends along the way when we come into this book we're in a very dire position, too. So already sort of launching into this book, it's like we have so much to wrap up. And let me just start by saying in a non-spoilery way, I think she tied up everything very nicely in this book. Candar Blake did.
1: She did. Uh this is this is one of those series where you'll never be happy the way that it ends, but you'll always be satisfied the way that it ends. She does a really good job of of taking you to its inevitable conclusion and it is it is satisfying
0: and I uh, I do I, I totally agree with that. that's a great word for it. It's satisfying and it's hard because we all love these characters and the story so much we're super invested in it. So yeah it, it, and it's like you know that it's not all gonna work out so perfectly and neatly because that's just not her writing style that's not the character she makes she makes very realistic characters who are going through very very hard things and there's something happening on this island where the goddess is really like i need to change things and there's going to be an upheaval of this world so already going into it you're like wow anything could really happen there's like this crazy divine intervention going on
1: because you know something is wrong this is this is a land where the goddess absolutely exists and the magic absolutely exists both because of the gifts and because that's the only way that the queen always gives birth to three triplets but somewhere along the way things have gotten perverted yeah diluted exactly you have these different factions who are controlling the queens and and making up their own rules and and turning it into legend like oh this is known this is this is ancient laws and it's not they're making it up as they go along and it's be- yeah
0: it's, it's- kind of like how a lot of organized religions like to change the narrative to suit um political machinations Yeah, machinations <laughs> i can't say that word but um it's very much the same thing and if you love books where political maneuverings is what's going on then you must have been super happy with this series. That's one of my favorite parts of it is all of the shifting, moving parts, um the big cast of characters as there's all these, you know, shady alliances being formed behind the scenes.
1: What I love about this series is the character work she does with her characters. Every single book, I feel like I've had a different favorite character, mm-hmm. and those characters have existed since the very beginning. Everyone has such strong growth while also maintaining being themselves throughout oh, yeah. the series. The, the, um, the arsenal from book one is the same arsenal from book four, but she has taken a journey that has turned her into a different person and made her experiences, uh, different yeah Uh, every character has this strong growth they don't end the same but they're consistent
0: right and uh i really appreciate how much growth goes on realistically when you look at this this series has taken place over like a year i mean besides the the flashback books the novellas that kind of fill in some backstory and stuff but it's it's not been like a long time it's been a lot going on absolute chaos in these characters lives but it's been pretty quick
1: I believe it's been two, maybe three years since the beginning of the book. Are you
0: book sure? Ends. No. Yes,
1: because because the initial quickening and, and that whole event, that is a year long.
0: Okay, that's true. So let's say two years.
1: Yeah, I think, I think it's about two years because...
0: We could be wrong. Somebody's screaming at us right now in their car as they're listening to this.
1: I'm trying to do the timeline in my head because there is a reference in a way to how long it's been. Yeah. And... Without going back, I want to say it's three years almost to the day from the beginning.
0: And I'm going more like two years. Okay. So anyway, it's not been a lifetime's worth of stuff in this series, but it's been... A lot crammed into because it's so important, and everything that 's going on is such an upheaval and and so incredibly um monumental in these characters' lives, so I guess we kind of gave an experience score. you said struggle, though this is a little bit different than usual for me, it was an absolute obsession absolute obsession, uh, yeah,
1: absolutely yeah yeah
0: i there was at no point when I struggled through this book, even some hard stuff that happens. I could not stop not only turning the pages, but devouring and hanging on every word. And there's not a lot of series that I love like this. There's not a lot of authors that I think are so amazing like this. And um, in case you couldn't tell from clicking into this episode, we have another interview with the author, the woman herself, the Queen of Queens, Kendra Blake. And we are so incredibly humbled and thankful to have her sit- down with us uh, via Skype again and let us into her world and her thought process and allow us to, you know, kind of laud her with praise because we love her
1: books. As you know, we said it the last time, she's kind of our JK Rowling of this decade. She
0: kind of is for these two genre junkies anyway. All right. So I guess without much further ado. Let's
1: just go right into go- the interview. We're going to go right
0: into the interview. And when we come back, we're going to talk spoilers for the the end is nigh five dark fates
1: welcome back to genre junkies for the second time we're so excited to be speaking with kendara blake kendara welcome back to the show
2: thanks thanks for having me Woo!
0: applause applause we are always happy to have you and um Yeah. We miss you. We miss you.
2: (laughs) You know, um, like, before we get started, I have to tell you guys. Yes. um, Just something from last time. You you remember we, like, you gave me all those great horror recommendations? Yes. Yes. And, like, I jot them down on my list and everything. And then one of them was a book called The Good Demon, which you guys had just read, I think.
0: Yes. At the time.
2: Yep. And the weirdest thing, I ran into the author of The Good Demon on tour, like, two weeks later. What? What? Yeah. We were just both happening to be, pl- like, we were both passing through square books on the same night. He was doing something completely unrelated, like he'd recorded a, a, a radio interview, and then he did a, another event at a separate venue, and we were doing ours at a different venue. But randomly, all of the bookstore owners took us all out to drinks at the same place, and so we got to chatting, and he told me what his book was, and I'm like, no friggin' way. Genre junkies just told me I needed to read this. It's on the top of my list, like my two buy memo in my phone. And I showed him, I'm like, you're right at the top there. See, I'm not lying. <laughs> and did you so read it? Different. I bought it, but as usual, it's you know on the pile. Yep, the ever-growing pile. But no, he's he was really cool, and I'm really excited to read it. But as usual, it you know. I fall behind. I'm a really slow reader, actually.
0: You know what? You had the best of intentions. We all do when we do these TBRs, and it's the thought that counts.
2: Well, and it's, I mean, I will get to it eventually. And I find the height of my TBR a little bit soothing. I know some people find it very daunting. Mm. But when I look at it, I almost just get like a warm, excited feeling, like just knowing that there's so much yet for me
1: to read, you know?
2: Yeah. like seeing extra food in your cupboard. (laughs)
0: We will make it through this winter. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> we actually just got a uh, uh, one of those library carts that they used to push around with with books on it. I guess they still do. We painted it purple, and it's our two br shelf. And we're a little oh. bit worried that it's not big enough. <laughs>
2: Oh gosh, yeah, I'm sure you'll grow out of it very quickly. You might need a couple. You might need a fleet of push carts, (laughs) a barge. Yeah, no, it's it. I I like that
0: feeling too. I like that feeling of like you know the books are just like they're there. They're friends. They're waiting for you. They're waiting for your embrace. I love that feeling.
2: Like if something was to happen and I could not make it to a bookstore for an extended period of time, I'd be okay. I'd have stuff. Yes. Exactly. What's with us,
0: readers? We have this weird fear of running out of books. It's absurd. I, I, don't, I have a
2: weird fear of running out of everything. <laughs> I like have like three extra bags of dog food. My cats are stocked up for several months. <laughs> yeah. You have a little bit of a prepper streak. just I do, just in case. Not so much for me. I guess it's mostly for the pets. So <laughs> like, I'll be eating cat food, but reading books, I suppose, <laughs> if you have a natural disaster.
0: That's also spoken like a true pet mom.
1: Yeah, <laughs> us too. So you were talking about your TBR. What does your library look like?
2: Oh, well, mm, there's a reason I don't post like cute pictures of it on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, I have several different stacks um, in my closet, like in the closet of my office. My office closet has beautiful shelves. Mm-hmm that I utilize and most of it is my TBR. And then if I buy something new, like I'll I'll go to the bookstore and you inevitably come out with at least a stack of 4. I think that's my minimum. Mm. So I'll put those on prominent display <laughs> up on my display shelves in my living room. But <laughs> then eventually they will get moved to the closet.
0: <laughs> it's like, look, these are my pretty fancy new girls and then into the closet they go. And then into the
2: closet they go when the next new stack comes. So, yeah. I don't know. You guys are making me feel like abuser, like an abuser of a book abuser.
1: (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. Believe me, we understand.
0: (laughs) We all have this same relationship. (laughs) So, of course, your newest book came out, which is also the last book in this saga. Yeah.
2: Yeah. As of this recording, it's coming out tomorrow.
0: This recording is also coming out tomorrow.
2: Okay. Well... (laughs) So I'm highly, I'm like, very, very caffeinated and also sedated. I don't know how that works. (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, this
0: is going to be an emotional episode of genre junkies when we review this book. Uh, How difficult has it been for you to say goodbye to Fenburn and the Queens? Or are you kind of happy to be saying goodbye? Oh, no,
2: no. I'm, I'm like, almost, I'm almost physically sick. Like, (laughs) it's it's a real kind of funk that I'm finding myself in. And I've got to perk myself up because I've got um, the book launch tomorrow and uh, we're doing it in Seattle, and I've got all these swag prizes set out and i I ordered fancy treats and, you know, uh, my friend Katie McGee, who writes the Thousandth Floor series. yeah, and she's just launching her new series called American Royals about uh, an alternate history where, George Washington became king instead of the first president. And now we've had a monarchy of Washington's ever since. Yes, I've heard about this. Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's good. It's delightful and twisty. But she's coming up and we're going to do a joint launch party, kind of like farewell to one series, hello to her new series. And mm. I've got to be all smiles and perky, but really I just want to curl up in a blanket <laughs> and like have cocoa and marshmallows and grumble <laughs> for like, <laughs> The next 48 hours. Right?
0: You're like, give me my weighted blanket and my animals. I'm in mourning.
2: in mourning. I'm going to be really, really, I'm really sad to say goodbye to this island.
1: So you talked about on the last episode with us that your characters kind of dictate the story to you as you're writing it. But this fourth book feels like it's on just a, a continuous march towards the inevitable. Did you have an idea in this book where it was going at the end? Or did this happen organically as well?
2: I mean, it all happened organically. It was mostly, the difference was it was mostly them dragging me, <laughs> <laughs> dragging me like a plow, you know, to, um, and I, because I didn't, I'm like, you guys, no, no, just don't do that. And they're like, huh, eh, what are we going to do? So uh, I wrote it really slowly. It went very slowly. Um, we We went very late. I was working on the book at the end of May, which is ridiculous. Mm. when it comes like I I should have been done ages and ages before that but uh, I just I was dawdling honestly mm. and uh, no but I mean it was the end and the only thing that I hoped was that the characters would meet ends that were worthy of them and you know were were suited to them and as usual they did whatever the heck they wanted to <laughs> okay. and um, even though it didn't please me sometimes there were definitely some things there are often things in my books that I would, characters I want to save. I really wanted to save Natalia Aaron in book two. Um, but I, I tried and it didn't work. So I've just learned to let them do what they want.
0: Yeah. I, and I think it works.
1: I think it's for the best. Do your characters make you cry while you're writing?
2: No, no. I'm a hard-hearted bitch. Um, I, <laughs> but I will get very sad. Like I will have a, a sad feeling and a sad face. But... I kind of know what's coming about um, even sometimes that by the time the series ends, I kind of know maybe even up to half a book in advance what might come. Now, there are still things that surprised me. A few twists and turns in the final battle happened that I did not see coming at all. And I was like, "Ah, you don't say. (laughs) But... um, So I've had a lot, by the time I'm writing it, I've had time to process it. So I'm not just like weeping in front of my computer, thankfully. (laughs) But it's still, it's still, yeah, it's still upsetting.
1: There's Uh, enough tears between the two of us and the rest of the readers to make up for it. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Speaking of characters, uh, do you have favorite characters of your own books? Or do you love all your children equally?
2: I mean, I say that I would love them all equally, but for different reasons. Some of them are more fun to write than others. Um, Arsenault has always been more fun to write than Mirabella, although Mirabella has had her moments now that she's kind of come out of her shell and and found her own way of things. Mm-hmm. Jules has become less fun to write as the series went on just because she has to go through some stuff. Ugh. so There's a lot on her shoulders and uh, her... Her arc is very difficult, um, difficult to watch, and it's difficult to, to get through. I've always loved writing The Poisoners just because they're delightfully wicked, and yet they don't think of themselves as wicked at all. Yes. And I love that. Yes. Um, and they have that great aesthetic. Like they have the poisoned food. They've got the fancy clothes. They're very... Yeah. They're very they're the poison whole poisoner thing is like a poisoner mood, you know, which is fun to get into.
0: (laughs) And you know, the poisoners are my favorite. That's my people. And I think that's (laughs) one reason I love them is because they are truly the heroes of their own story. And yeah, their aesthetics are their goals, their goals
2: for life. Yeah, yeah. My editor said at one point, like, don't you think Kat's being a little mean? Like, she's a poisoner, man. I mean, she's not, but she was raised that way. It's nat—it's nurture over nature right now, you know? Right. So, um, and according to the poisoners, like, if you poison someone and they don't die, then there's really nothing even to, to boo-hoo about. It's like, <laughs> we didn't kill them. It barely left a mark. What are you crying for? Right.
0: That, like, comes up a lot in this book, too. And I was like, yeah, yeah just poisoners being poisoners,
2: man. Yeah. They're... You know, it's I would think that being poisoned is almost like a brand of honor. Yeah, they almost envy it, I think, because they that's something that can never happen to them.
0: Yes, as a poisoner, I agree. I'm like, look at all this time and attention I put into you. I made this great concoction and I dipped these ropes in poison and lucky you. Enjoy my painful art, you ungrateful troll. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) You know, last time you were here, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, and of course, if you can't say anything, I understand, but you got my little hopes up quite high when you teased an Edgar Allan Poe project.
2: Oh, yeah. It comes out in October.
0: Ah! Yay! What's the name of it again for everybody at home?
2: It's His Hideous Heart, and it is anthology- I think 13 of us got together and reimagined one of our favorite Edgar Allan Poe stories, like updated it, gave it a twist. The, they're being published side by side with the original story. So if you're not familiar with the stories that we chose, then you can go and read the original Edgar Allan Poe tale. Uh, interesting note they asked us to record our own audiobook. What? Like, a few of our stories. I had to go to a studio in, in Seattle and do the audio recording for the first time. And I have so much more respect for voice actors than I did even before. Uh, uh, because, man, that is hard. Yeah. I think about all kinds of things. Like, you're making too many mouth noises, too many noises with your mouth. Like, <laughs> I'm talking. Aren't I supposed to be making noises with my mouth?
0: It's like you're all self-conscious and like, uh, uh,
2: uh. Isn't that Isn't yeah. that the editor's job? Oh, yeah. I, I'm like, okay, I'm going to need some water. And um, I don't know. I don't know what I can do to quiet my mouth down. <laughs> yeah, oh, my it was, gosh. It was rough. And then I didn't know um, they wanted me to also record do do the audio recording for the original Edgar Allan Poe story, mm. which had some Latin in it and some French. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know how to pronounce any of this. That, so, yeah,
0: that's like something they just kind of spring on you. And you're like, yes, about that Latin.
2: Yeah, she coached me through it. And she was really great. Uh, The producer was really great. And I think I think we did okay, just doing it in short bursts, where she would just phonetically teach it to me, and I would repeat it. Um, and then she'll edit it all together. But Edgar Allan Poe, it was one of my favorite stories that we did. But when I was reading it, it's like, I'd never read it before. I'm like, Oh, my God, I've never noticed the weird-ass sentence structure that you use, bro. I mean, it yeah. was hard. <laughs> at, some, at, at one point, I'm just like, I'm just reading words now. I don't even know where I'm supposed to pause for effect. I'm just <laughs> reading the words. Right? <laughs> one Someone. after the other till I get to a period. Right? You need to call upon his ghost and be like, guide me through this, Ed. Uh, like, where did you want me to? F- the sentence is all over the place, but yeah. So, so it's fun. It's right. Fun, and Good so experience. much of
0: uh, that time period, a lot of the sentences, and I love him, you know, I'm obsessed, but it's like, and then me thinks I did this thing. Oh, yes, <laughs> I did this thing. And
2: oh, yeah. Yep. I Oh, and the story that I chose was Metzengerstein, which is about uh, it's I think it's one of his first published stories, if not the first of his. And it's about a horse, like a, an obsession with a horse and kind of a familial curse. But I have always said it in my head, Metzenger Steen. Uh-huh. So when we went to record it, I said, okay, so is this Stein or Steen? <laughs> she's like, let me Google it and try to find a consensus. And she's like, it looks like it's Stein. I'm like, well, we had a 50-50 shot at getting this right. <laughs> <laughs> I I am going to try to say Steen every single time we hit that word. Oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, you may detect in the audio some brief pauses where I just – it's Engerstein. <laughs> got it really hard. I'm getting some Young
0: Frankenstein vibes with that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so how long were you in the studio for that?
2: Oh, not very long. I think it was like an hour and a half.
1: Oh, oh nice. wow.
2: Yeah. Oh, very cool.
0: Hey, that's really cool. You know, you got to kind of challenge yourself and get out of your element.
2: That's, that's very admirable. Yeah. I mean... When they asked us, I was like, "Well, they know that we don't have any professional experience, right?" And the editor, Dahlia Adler, was like, "Yeah, they don't seem at all concerned." I was <laughs> like, "Okay, well, sign me up." <laughs> I love it. Just jump in with confidence; it'll work out. Yeah, so I, I'm I'm holding off on reading everybody else's stories until I can grab some of the audio too, because I would I would I'm looking forward to seeing how it all turned out. Nice.
1: Well, we will definitely be listening to it, so we'll let you know. So, when you're when you're writing, do you have a, a particular space or or a routine that you go through to set yourself up to write, or can you just write anywhere?
2: Um, there's usually a Doberman under my feet and a hairless cat on my lap sometimes, or just snaking through across my screen. So I have to crane my neck or look under his belly, depending, um, when I need to see what I'm actually writing. But I just went on my very first writer's retreat last month. And I wasn't sure how that was going to go because I'm like, okay, so I'm just going to write in a room full of other writers as we like ignore each other and stare at our screens and try to get our word counts up. I don't know how this is going to work, but <laughs> it went fine. It went fine. I had by far the lowest word count of the weekend, like by far, it was, <laughs> I was ashamed at the end of it. They're like, let's, let's total our word count so we can see how many total words that we got in over the course of this retreat, and after they told it everything up, it was like collectively we had written an entire fantasy novel, <laughs> and I contributed six thousand words of that. <laughs> yeah,
1: you wrote you wrote chapter four. <laughs> yeah,
2: I was very proud of my six thousand words. That's um, with the book that I'm working on right now. That's actually about two weeks worth of work. So, nice. wow, that's great. Uh, but I would. When everybody else said theirs, I'm like, I don't want to say. No, <laughs> you saw me. I was working, right? I wasn't slacking off, but I don't want to say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> don't page shame me. Yeah, don't do it.
1: Was this a new story that you were working on there, like like workshopping something, or was this an existing uh, existing project?
2: Uh, well, it's it's my 2021 book, oh. so it's not due until June. So I guess I'm ahead because I'm about halfway. All right. Nice. Good for you. That's what I was working on.
0: <laughs> so one thing that I love that you do on your social media is your fan art Friday, which uh, I guess this is more of a comment, less than a question. But how cool is that, that people make fan art of your characters? That must be just a, a really surreal feeling.
2: It is. It is. I And the fan art is so gorgeous. Like, these are... I know um, a lot of uh, – they're, they're professionals, mm. um, and they, they do the fan art to kind of get it out there and then hopefully be commissioned for their original paid work. And so the quality of it is astounding. It's just, like, I can't believe – I just – I can't believe a lot of it. Yeah. It's absolutely beautiful. So, yeah, I'm always excited. But I'm always just excited to see any kind of fan art. Like, you draw me stick people, and I am excited. I am excited about it that you – uh, put in the effort, and you know you made your little stick people. Hopefully, with some with some dialogue bubbles. Those are my favorite stick people. <laughs> They're talking. Um, yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of Three Dark Crowns uh, fan art out there, and so many different depictions of the queens. Yeah. I think that's my favorite part when it comes to Three Dark Crowns is seeing. So many different interpretations of the characters.
0: Oh, yeah, it's incredible. And it seems to be like, all over the world, uh, people, and I I like to think especially females, but people in general just really connect with these characters and these stories. That's always so cool when it can just really, you know, transcend and be something that a lot of people share.
2: Yeah, yeah, it is really neat. Sometimes I creep on the fandom. (laughs) (laughs) And you should just see what's going on in there. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> what you got going on in there, fandom?
1: Do you ever find your your own personal headcanon on, on how your queens look change from the fan art?
2: No, um, no, not really. I don't honestly, I don't really have a headcanon. The queens in my head are shadows movements and voices like i can i know the way that Arsenault moves i know the way that jules moves mm. i know the sound of their voice the tilt of their head i don't know what their faces look like i really don't that's i can cool. see they're like silhouettes honestly kind of like shadows that's... which i don't know does that sound weird no, <laughs> no it doesn't sound weird
1: it's it's fascinating does that does does that make it difficult to describe your characters
2: no uh, but i mean i describe them in I give eye color. I give hair color I, if they if that's necessary. Sometimes I don't give those things. I don't know if Nicholas Martell has a hair color actually. Now that you bring it up, um, so and you know, and then I just describe like their mannerisms. So I never say like I, I usually don't go as far as crooked noses or six wrinkled eyes or and that'd be weird. Nobody has six wrinkled eyes. Um, but yeah, so no, no. I guess it it doesn't. Um, I like people to form their own. Uh, you know, imaginings of what what the queens look like. That's something that actually scares me about the the movies. Like if anything ever becomes film, mm-hmm. then my queens in my head will disappear and they will become the actors. Like 100 percent. I know that. Yeah. And that kind of scares me. Yeah. Because that does
0: happen. It does happen.
2: Yeah. When they cast Cameron Monaghan as Kaz in Anna Dressed in Blood very briefly in the movie that never came to pass, mm-hmm. uh, even that short, just seeing him read the lines from the screen test, that's, that was like almost too much for me. It's like, okay, well, now you're Kaz. Now Kaz is gone and you are him. <laughs> and that it is. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm very susceptible.
0: Yeah, I think, I think a lot of us are. That's relatable. Um, You know, this is a fun question. I love to talk about horror with you because since you love horror, uh, have you read any good horror books this year? Seen any movies or TV shows that really stand out? And I guess it doesn't have to be just horror, but, you know, kind of some favorites from 2019 thus far.
2: Oh, yeah. um, God, you know, the years bleed together, so I can't Mm -hmm. remember uh, when exactly. But about two weeks ago, I I watched uh, Ready or Not, (gasps) see Ready or Not. Haven't seen it yet. Can't wait. Looks so good. It gave me. Did you see that movie a couple years ago? Your next. Yes, of course. It gave me serious your next vibes. Ah. Like the whole time, I was like, "Huh, this is like your next, except a little bit snarkier, a little bit funnier, you know, a little yeah. bit more cheek at times." Uh, but yeah, yeah, it was it was really good. It was clever. It was well done. Um, it was fun. Mm-hmm. Which I always, I always like a little fun with my horror. Not always, I guess, but it could be a refreshing. Movie, like, really, yeah, yeah. it really works. Oh, um, we're gonna go see it Chapter Two next weekend. Yes, so I'm very excited for that. As far as books, shoot, no, I don't know if I have read. I know I have to have. I don't not read horror for a whole year. That just doesn't happen. <laughs> um, but nothing. It's not springing to mind. I I watched the new. The AMC adaptation of NOS 42, Nosferatu. Oh, yes. Did you guys watch that?
0: We have not gotten all the way through it, but we are huge Show Hill fans, and we love the book.
2: But you haven't started the series? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> uh, I, there are so many. I mean, I really liked a lot of aspects of it. I was unprepared for... Um, Charlie Manx mm. and his depiction, okay. like in a good Zachary, way. Zachary Kinto, isn't it? Who they got Spock yeah. from the new? Yeah, yeah. And it's almost like he's too good looking when he's young. <laughs> you know, I'm like I don't want to, I don't want to see you this way, Charlie Manx. Like it's not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're not a heartthrob, Charlie Manx. Yeah, I'm like, you're a gross old soul, sucking thing. But no, sometimes he's just spock.
0: <laughs> that is too funny. And that's another really good example of like it kind of bleeds the character that you had in your
2: head with the actor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I did love I love the young actress that they got to play um Vic. She's just great. Absolutely great. So, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy the series when you when you binge it.
0: <laughs> it's inevitable. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's an inevitable it's inevitable that we all eventually binge all the stuff that we want to binge
1: there actually does seem to be a lot of you know translations of genre fiction into uh tv shows and into movies these days do yeah. you do you think that that one of those mediums is you know better than the other or or more true than the other
2: um i think this the short form series on tv that you know like 10 episodes of an hour or less, you know, 10, 40 minute episodes has done a really good job with some of the source material. I don't know why it's just like, you have just that much extra time Mm -hmm. for character development, but not so much time that you're stretching anything. It's just, it seems very suited. I don't know if it's better though. I know they're doing the Netflix series of Lee Bardugo's Grishaverse, which I'm very, very excited for. And that seems like the perfect format for that just just enough to explore you know and really dig in and take time with the character but films can be done extremely well so i think it just it just differs it differs by project
0: i think i'm with you i do like the short form tv series to kind of tell a story yeah it can be a really good pace for it so uh, yeah i'm I'm into it too. I got to say the other thing I'm super excited for this year is the uh the Joker movie, the new one with
2: Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, you know, I have not seen. I saw that the preview, the first preview came out a couple of like last week and I was like, "Oh, I got to watch that." And I still haven't. Okay, yeah. What is uh like does he is he doing a strange take on it? What do you think?
0: I, you know, I'm a huge Batman fan, and the Joker particularly, and they are kind of doing like a new origin story of the Joker. I love Joaquin, too. I think he's amazing. But he lost like 50 or 60 pounds for this role set in the 70s. He's kind of like a failed clown and stand-up comic. Francis Conroy plays his mother. I think they're taking it to a cool place. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I can get behind that. I'm excited for that and I'm excited for Doctor Sleep too. Of course, the sequel to The Shining.
2: Yes, I just saw the they they ran that preview ahead of Ready or Not last weekend and I thought, "Oh wow, that actually looks good." Now I understand that they a lot of my excitement for this is just them tugging very hard on my Shining nostalgia strings <laughs> which are very firmly rooted in my, you know, my my wallet. You just pull on those strings and there goes my money. <laughs>
0: It's like magic.
2: Yeah, it's like magic. But like the minute they they had the clip of um the elevator blood and they pulled out the twins and they pulled out the song. Uh, the minute Red Rum showed up on the mirror, I was like, OK, well, I'll see this. Yep. Great book, too. Yeah. You know, I read it almost concurrently with Nosferatu, and I think it suffered a little in comparison oh, for me. Oh,
0: yeah. I can. That happens. We do that as readers. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And it it felt because they had such a similar vibe.
0: Yeah, I have kind of a, a random question for you. So we know you like some scary stuff, and you like fantasy, and you like a blend of the two. Um, would you ever write just a straight up slasher, or have you where there's like no supernatural element?
2: Um, um is that your is that your thing? <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of no. I I want to say I'm working on one now, but it's not. Like it's not. <laughs> I'm I'm getting like flashes of like when you say slasher, you're meaning like the 1984 upcoming season of American Horror Story, right? Like, right.
0: Yeah. Like there's nothing. S- lake, you know. Yeah, it's yeah. nothing supernatural. It's just like a crazy dude or
2: girl. Um, I don't know. Like the there's a there there's a supernatural question at the heart of my twenty one 2021 book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about uh, spree killing. Well, there's been a spree killing, but it's a very strange spree killing. In 1958, it's based on the Clutter Murders from In Cold Blood and the Starkweather-Fugate Murder Spree that ripped through the heartland in that year. So I'm treating it, it's very, it's set in a world where the supernatural does not exist. But but what does that mean when the only kind of reasonable explanation seems to be supernatural? Mm. So it'll be like, is it supernatural? Is it not supernatural? That can't possibly be what it seems to be, you know? So, like, question. But I wouldn't say, yeah. So, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I always tend to go back to horror eventually. Um, so, I guess if I'm living and writing long enough, I could do a slasher. <laughs> right, I, I enjoy yeah. posters, Like I like watching them. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's really cool. Cause um I I love
0: supernatural stuff more than non-supernatural, I have to admit. But I would love to see your take on uh yeah, kind of a traditional slasher. So I that makes me excited. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Well, when the twenty twenty one book comes out, I'll be interested to see what side you fall on. Since you like supernatural, I'll be interested to see if you're of the camp that thinks, oh yeah, that was supernatural. <laughs> or you're like, no, no, that's not real.
0: <laughs> i do tend to side with the uh this the paranormal part
1: yeah almost always it's it's always oh it's always me thinking oh there's nothing weird about this and sandra likes to likes to think that there's something supernatural i am fox on.
0: Mulder. i love him uh, well he's usually right yep sure is Oh my gosh, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you stopping and you know taking some time out of your day for us. Now you said you're doing the launch. You're doing kind of a little mini tour as well, yes? Where can people find you?
1: Yeah,
2: um, I'm going out on the Epic Reads tour starting on September 10th. We'll be in Connecticut. I can't remember the city, but it's a small state. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll be there. It'll be me uh, Sarah Roche with These Divided Shores, the sequel to These Rebel Waves uh, about pirates. Um, and then two debuts, uh, Shelby Mahurin, Mahirin, I I can't remember how to pronounce her last name, but she wrote Serpent and Dove okay. uh, about a witch hunter and a witch. And Rena Barron, who wrote Kingdom of Souls, and they all also come out the day of this podcast, September 3rd. <laughs> And uh, yeah, we'll be hitting the road together. Connecticut is our first stop, and then I think it is North Carolina, Virginia, Florida, and San Diego.
1: Okay. Oh, San Diego! I might make that drive. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, where are you guys? We're where are in, you guys local? We're in Northern California. We're in Sonoma County. Ah, okay. We went to Northern California, I think, last year, but nothing, nothing up there this year. Okay. Darn
0: it. Well, you know, if you uh do, you can sleep on our wonderful sectional couch <laughs> and you can bring your husband. It sleeps two adults very comfortably.
2: <laughs> oh, very nice. Very nice. Is is the cat, is she friendly or, or do you wake up with her like all curled in on your chest, just staring you in the face?
0: <laughs> little column A, little column B. Is
1: that not is that <laughs> not the definition of friendly? <laughs>
2: And it'll be a surprise, you know. Maybe, it'll, maybe it'll be my husband. Maybe it'll be me. But <laughs> one of we will get the death gaze.
0: <laughs> love that gaze.
2: Thank you so
0: much again for joining us. We appreciate it. Everybody, go out and read this book. I mean, if you're listening to this, you're already probably super addicted, like we are.
2: Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me back.
0: Well, there you have it. Thank you again to Kendar Blake for sitting down with us. Talking with us, she's awesome. Follow her on all social media. If she's coming to your city, go see her. Um, Of course, I mean, why wouldn't you? If you're this far into this episode, there's no way you're missing Kendara Blake. uh, Having her in your home digitally or having her in your space physically, if you're so darn lucky.
1: We would have her on. We would talk to her on and off the record every day if we could. We consider her a friend. She's a pal.
0: We have offered her and her husband to sleep on our couch if they ever come to our neck in the woods. Like, you don't even need a hotel. Scott will make you breakfast every day. <laughs>
1: uh, it's it,
0: like a bed and breakfast, but it's our couch. It's a, it's a sectional. It's a big couch.
1: It's a really big couch. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. <sighs> Let's talk spoilers. Now, this episode is coming out the day that the book releases. I know that there is some of our genre junkies have gotten to read it early like we did, Uh if you didn't i highly encourage you to finish the series read the book you'll probably do it in a day yep and come back and listen to this because we want to we want to share in the struggle and yeah. the sadness and the joy with you.
0: And, I mean, who knows what's happened. I mean, we're probably going to probably gonna talk about this book for a long time to come. This series, we're probably going to reference it a lot. You know, put little, <laughs> like, oh, and then I remembered this thing that I loved in, in like, this series. And, like, peppered into other episodes because it, like, means that much to us. So here we are. <sighs> I mean, should we even bother with an appeal score. I, you know, I've gone back and forth with different appeal scores over the episodes with these books. I still, I mean, I think at this point, with putting a bow on it, I'm still feeling that it's a mass appeal series. Um, I I think people who are not generally into fantasy could still get a lot out of this series. And I think that people who love fantasy, Uh, Fantasy will enjoy this take on this goddess-worshipping matriarchy and the political maneuverings and the really interesting magic... space. I,
1: I don't know what I've given this series in the past, but after reading all four books, I think that I have to call this a mass appeal as well. Yeah. I think this is the kind of story that anyone would enjoy reading and, and everyone should enjoy reading. And for the people who don't read and wait for things to be uh, translated onto one uh, either the large screen or the small screen, this is something that would be Game of Thrones-level popular if it was ever turned into a TV show or a series of movies. This is so good and original and inventive and exciting and meaningful. It's a mass appeal story.
0: Uh, So, she did it. I knew she was going to kill people. I knew that people were not going to get out of this book alive. I have talked about in the past that I you know, wasn't sure that Kat was going to be able to survive this series because of going through so much... And her possession and you know the dilution of her. But um, you know, I was holding on hope that her and Peter could kind of like, once the queens were exercised, that she could go and maybe they could go live somewhere else and be happy and in love together. And no. No, Kat had to had to go.
1: Um I really didn't feel like there was going to be a true redemption arc, a a a happy ending, I should say, for, for, for Kat, Kat, because her redemption arc happened in the third book her, her 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 you know her rescue happened in the third book and she denied it And partially, it was because the queens, you know, beat her. She would have never, she would have never hurt Peter on her own. The queens won in that case, but she wouldn't have been able to tell that story again in the fourth book. That was her chance. That was her opportunity, and she lost it.
0: Let's talk a little bit about each kind of queen and the plots that affected them and their characters. So, obviously, we kind of started with Cat. So, let's keep that going. So, Cat are quote-unquote Poisoner Queen. Really a naturalist. Uh, Shout-out to Sweetheart. I hope that Peter took care of Sweetheart after Cat passed away. Um, (laughs) I I love Cat. She's, like, my favorite because I feel like her character is so fascinating. She went from being the one that did not stand a snowball's chance in hell of getting the crown to being possessed by a legion of undead queens having a sick, dark, crown tattoo and having all this power but like being so conflicted because when she's her she's still her but she's so poisoned by these queens um i'm so so happy with her arc i was sad to see her go but i knew it was like 60 40 that she was gonna die uh i love that she saved her sisters she saved both of them And I really liked her and Peter's relationship. And the fact that Peter loved her so much and knew that this wasn't his cat doing all the bad things, but he had to make it really clear to her, like eye contact on the battlefield clear to her, that I can't support you in this.
1: But he also had to be there no matter what happened. He had to support her in a way, whether... whether. Arsinoe was successful in exercising those demons, or if she did have to die because he still loved her and he wanted to be there with her.
0: There's a part that I really liked in the book where, um, well, there's several parts, I should say. One reference in particular is when uh, uh, Kat talks about how she's really bonded with Pepper, the little woodpecker. She's yeah. like, I'm quite fond of him and she she makes a little loaf of nut bread for him, which I thought was so sweet because she is a naturalist. But uh, I loved that she kind kind of has a friendship with Brie and Elizabeth uh, like that for once in her life she got to have a little bit of girlfriend time
1: and girlfriends who weren't trying to manipulate her or control her or even train her they they really did become friends.
0: They really did. And I think that was really important to her when she was herself and she was in control to have some true joy in her life. She had some joy from Peter and stuff too because she got to experience love. And of course, ultimately, she got to experience the love of her sisters and like reciprocate that. But I like that she got to have like some actual friends there for a little bit too. Um, There's also like, okay, this is kind of like, surface level, I know. But, you know, we love to talk about Kendar's beautiful descriptive writing and prose. And when she describes cat's armor, which is gold and black, which is like, ugh, I love that. And it's engraved with a skull and snakes. I die. I die. So good.
1: There's a moment in our interview with Kendara the second time that really opened my eyes to her writing style that I had never really noticed before. And now that I think about it, I get it. She's incredibly descriptive when it comes to clothing, when it comes to food, when it comes to setting. And she's not actually very descriptive when it comes to the looks of the characters themselves. And I guess that's something I never really noticed, is that because she's so descriptive, and she's so detailed and so wonderful in describing all of these things in the world, the fact that our visions of the characters are our own is something kind of magical.
0: Uh, Yeah, it's really, really cool insight into how she thinks of characters. Um, So yeah, I was very happy with the treatment of Kat and the conclusion of Kat's story. You too?
1: Yeah, I, I was. Kat was the one of the three queens that I was satisfied and happy for her in a way. She found herself. She she lived for herself in the end, and she saved her sisters.
0: So beautiful. So let's talk about Queen Arsinoe next. Uh, Arsinoe is the one in personality who is the most like me in real life. And uh, she's sarcastic, and she's funny, and she's kind of headstrong sometimes and kind of jumps first without looking sometimes. Uh, her humor, I think this was probably her funniest book. She had lots of little zingers and also like little mental thoughts that were like super funny too. I appreciate how, in the darkest of times, she has humor because that's what gets me and I think most of us through anything. Um, I love her beautiful scarred face. Uh, there's actually one point when um, Amelia tells her like the scars that you hide is like the best part of you, so let's go get you some more. But Amelia is another subject. We're gonna we're gonna do an Amelia
1: jewels subject. That's yeah, gonna be its own its yeah. own section.
0: Yeah. Um, I was super happy with Arseno's journey uh, throughout the books. I was happy with her conclusion that her and Billy have some stuff to work through, but. She went to go get her boy back at the end. I loved that so much. Uh, you know, she's got her her Braddock, her beloved Braddock. He's gotta go, he's gotta go be a bear. He's been through enough. But so she's gonna obviously, you know, I see this in my mind. Like they're gonna live on the mainland for like a few weeks at a time, and then they're gonna come back and live on Fenburn for a few weeks at a time. And I I just like totally see this life with her and Billy where they have some independence and they are part of both worlds. I was super, super happy about that.
1: I knew of the three queens, if there was going to be any of them that survived, Arsenault would be the one.
0: 100%.
1: She is of both worlds now. She doesn't belong in either, and yet she is a part of both. And
0: She has a way to find herself. Yeah.
1: And she's definitely the most uninvolved in the whole the whole queen struggle. It affects her probably the hardest because she never really wanted to be a part of any of this. She's the the one who is dragged kicking and screaming into this. She wasn't trained for it. She didn't want it.
0: Yeah. Oh, and then aside from finding out that she's actually this incredibly brilliant poisoner, like she's so good. And for her, because she wasn't raised by the poisoners, by the errands, she focuses more on the healer, Tincture side of it, which I think is really cool, kind of being like this wise woman witch figure, which is really beautiful. Um, And also sort of embracing the low magic. She comes to a good place with it, I felt, where she's not going to be addicted to it like magical which, by the way, shout out to Magical. So glad she got a redemption. She got a lot of praise and a beautiful funeral in this book. But um, she's at a comfortable place where, where it's like, this is who I am. And I'm really, really effing good so, at it.
1: I'm good at it. I'm going to use it. This, yeah. is the, this is the one thing that I've always been good at.
0: I shall use it. It shall not use me. Yes. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about Queen Mirabella. Queen Mirabella. <sighs> Mirabella. Perhaps the biggest journey of all. I don't know. In the weirdest way, I mean, I really, cats is probably the biggest journey of all. But Mirabella went from being so the favorite and so perfect and so incredibly strong to being allowed to be flawed. And to go against the grain of what she was bred to be, you know, expected outcome, and I think it's really, really powerful. She becomes so like the ultimate big sister.
1: She sees the best in both of her sisters,
0: and she wants she won't stand against either of them, and she's gonna she's gonna fix this is her her goal.
1: Her death was the point when I closed the book, not out of anger not out of exasperation, just out of sadness and said, I I, I have to put this down. I yeah. can't finish this book right now.
0: It was really powerful and it was really hard because not only did Kat save her, but Mirabella knew she kind of had to die because she was too powerful and those queens were never going to let her be.
1: If the queens had gone into Mirabella, it would have been all over. They would be have unlimited power because Mirabella is probably the strongest gifted female in a millennia. Yeah. Her death was rough for a few reasons for me, though. I just... I it came very suddenly for me. It came more suddenly than I would have liked, which is part of I think part of what makes that scene so powerful. I had to read that scene and the chapters before it a few times. I read it. I again. read
0: her death chapter twice. Because as I was starting to move into the next chapter, I was like, no, no, she's fine. She's going to be fine. It's Mirabella. She's fine. Somehow the elements are going to knit her back together. And then it's like, okay, she's missing the back of her head. Oh, <laughs> like- <laughs> Um, it's curtains, it's curtains for yeah, Mirabella.
1: She's, she's gone. She yeah. is true, well and truly gone. And it was prophesied in a way that she would be thrown from the rocks herself. Uh, it was part of, <sighs> it's part of the cycle. It just happened so suddenly for me that I don't, I didn't feel like I really got to say goodbye. It's like, okay, she's, she's getting things done and, and they find the temple and they figure out, oh my God, this is, this is, a- this is actually the history of Fenburn, and then she died. She was dead. But the way she died and the reason she died is what's powerful. Yeah. Cat saved her by killing her.
0: Oh, it's wretched! It's it's this wretched prophecy in a way that, in order for the island to move forward, like the most powerful queen in in an argument, the most powerful queen had to go. Uh, but uh, but but she united the fam.
1: But Mirabella knew she was weakened, and and they were going to that the dead queens were going to take her over, and she begged Catherine, "Don't." Don't let them take me. Yeah. And killing Mirabella was the only way Kat could save her.
0: It was a big sacrifice. It showed a lot of love. It showed a lot of bravery on Kat's point. Like, it was... And just, I mean, her last letter to Arsenault to Mirabella's was like her final act of knitting the family together. And it took Arsenault a little bit to get there, understandably. But it was like Mirabella knew, like, I've got to do this. Cause she remembered everything. Mirabella always remembered their times together, and that was really important. Like when they were little, she she never forgot any of it. Remember?
1: Well, yeah, no, I do, and that was that was what what brought the the sisters together in the end. Uh, their their weakness and unwillingness to fight is what started this, but their their love for each other and Mirabella's memory of them is what held them together. She was the peacemaker.
0: Yeah. Um. Let's put a little bow on Jules and Amelia, not to lump them but we're going to lump them a little bit because their stories are so intertwined in these last two books um i really grew to love amelia um i thought she was like just really awesome so kick-ass um i love that like her vulnerable side comes out because of her feelings for Jules, um you know and that she's kind of like i'm gonna get you one day like you're you're gonna be mine I know this like yeah. but i love that their relationship was realistic in the span of time yeah because jules went from losing the love of her life to then like okay like i do have feelings for th- this person this girl i was i knew it i was like it's gonna be her war yeah. wife but um i mean she kind of hinted at it but yes. yeah but that she was like but i need some time to process this, like she wasn't ready to just a hundred percent like just jump right in there. Amelia was like giving her the signs and you know, like wanted to kiss her and stuff and be like, This is real. And like when you're ready, I'm ready. But she respected Jules um space. And, like, let her take her time to get there. Because it's like, you're going through this huge, crazy battle thing. You can't expect, like, I mean, in a lot of fantasy books, that is when the characters just, oh, I love you. And they, like, embrace and they, like, become, like, so passionate. But it's like, really? In the time of war, would that be when I start a relationship? I don't know.
1: No, probably not. Uh, although the war gifted are are a special bunch when it comes to that. That probably right, is the most right. romantic thing in the world. But Jules is
0: only part war gifted. Yes, um, I, I loved that they took the tether for her. Amelia and Arsenault took the tether for
1: um, Jules. Yeah, which which complicated their relationship quite a bit. I mean, you have this blossoming romance, uh, this kind of this kind of complicated relationship, and now you throw on the fact that she's tethered to this woman yeah she's she's in in as strong a way as you could possibly even imagine basically been wedded to this woman when she hasn't even really truly fallen in love with her yet that's that makes things complicated
0: it does it and i mean that could be a whole book in and of itself just that relationship between them uh like I said, I love Amelia, and there was like a, a line from Amelia that I loved and I like totally highlighted in the book, which is when um she goes to rescue Billy because she promises Arsino she's going to look after Billy, which was a good way to kind of give her an occupation for some of this other parts of the book to play out without her interference. But, um you know, Billy's a mainlander, of course, they're not like us. <laughs> They're from the real world. And he, you know, gets picked up by her after he's been stabbed out on the battlefield. And he says, Amelia, thank God. And he's like telling her what happened. And she's like, thank God in your own country. (laughs) (laughs) Made me so happy. It's like, this goddess country boy. Like, no, I thought it was so cute. She has a lot of good little zingy lines like that.
1: And that was actually the point when I really appreciated Amelia the most when she was forced to promise Arsenal okay fine i'll look after billy i can't promise anything but fine i will i will watch after him and then this, as she sees that billy is about to get slaughtered it's like Damn it, Arsenal. And so she charges in to save him. That was like, okay, she really truly is a, a strong and and loyal person.
0: Um, I liked that there was a lot of kind of redemption in this book. And by the end of the series, we got redemption for Madrigal, like I mentioned earlier, which I thought was really important to not let her go out as a villain. And even though she was a problematic mom she did have an addiction to the low magic but i mean like you know like she had a husband in the end and a baby and she did the most crazy ultimate sacrifice for her daughter and like this when she since she was born and like has carried this huge burden which is probably why in part she's been a little bit of a problematic mom uh you know because she just had this thing going on that made their relationship really complicated you know like tying her blood to her and everything. Uh, there was a great redemption for Luca, the high priestess, because I was mad at that that bee for a long time. Uh, but I'm glad that that, like, it was like she had her slap on the wrist, but I don't think she deserved to be punished any more for it than what happened.
1: Everything that she ever did, she always truly did feel was in the best interests of the island. And that's why I've always respected Luca she didn't make all of the best choices but she she more than anyone else truly felt this is the right thing for the island
0: there was um some good poisoner love I want to talk about a little bit and that is kind of our final scene with Genevieve because Genevieve she's a very much a product of her time and place you know she's cruel kind of But, uh, you know, Natalia was the one that had the kindness. And of course, she kind of has to step up and do something in honor of her family and especially in honor of Natalia. And I know that this was totally Kendara being like, this is a salute to Natalia. When, you know, the battle's going on. And Genevieve gets back and, you know, because this is like chaos going on and the other um, errands are like sacking the place and like running for the hills And she has, like, this real momentary struggle. I'm going to paraphrase this. Uh, No, I cannot go. You are right, Antonin. The errands must survive. But at least one errand must remain also with the queen. And, you know, they're like, they're going to burn us in the square. And she's like, then I will burn. And she swings off her horse and her hands are trembling. It says she is not brave by nature, not like her sister. But she hands over the reins and she's like, no, I'm doing this.
1: I'm going to stay.
0: And it's not only powerful, but it's... It's like in such a place as this where it is a matriarchy and it is so girl power, it was really nice to see her woman up and have her strong poisoner and female pride and sisterly loyalty too. That meant a lot to me. Obviously, I kind of like committed it to memory.
1: <laughs> I the, the final battle was Ugh. was powerful for me for a, a number of reasons. But one thing that that really affected me And this is not, this has nothing to do with the book itself. This has to do with, with the setting and preconceived notions. Mm -hmm. Whenever you, whenever you talk about, when you think about a a large fantasy war, a large battle, you always picture these men in armor who are, Mm -hmm. who are fighting each other. You know, think the 300, think, braveheart think all of this stuff and i have to admit my first mental image was of that and kendara made multiple points yes. of stating that these were women there's, these were two yes. armies of women i'm like there's of course there's they men. are oh, there are men there
0: but it's a woman's army yes um as like i like the war gifted and i do like that kind of um passion and fervor for battle but I like that they're not just bloodlusty in like a like a dumbass way. Like they know full well the price of war and the cost of it. And it wasn't glorified in, like, a way that I feel like other fantasy books I've read in the past are. Like, there's, um, like you said, there's lots of times when it's, like, these women guards, this woman soldier, like, so that you can really see. And, uh, you know, at one point it says, um, it is young women now who bleed upon the battlefield, young women who will lead them, no matter which side prevails, there will be no more puppet queens. And it's really important that it was, like, you know, it's not, like, (sighs) It's not some weird romanticized version of war. There's some ugly stuff we see and hear in this book. And of course, after Ro goes freaking bonkers. Why did you do that to Ro,
1: Kandara? Why did you do that to her?
0: Hey, you know what? Some blood needs to be shed. And I mean, at least all those kids survive, but it's like so touching. Like, oh my gosh, like the babies, like it's so sad. But I I really appreciate that. The treatment of this battle and of the war gifted in general is that it's a passion, it's a bloodlust, yes, but it's not... It's not all
1: glory. The war gifted don't want to just go to war at all times. That's the important part. They're not war mongering, but if they're going to go to war, they're going to enjoy it.
0: Well, they're gonna they're win. gonna revel in it. Yeah, this is their
1: time. This is this is this is when this is in some respects what they exist for. But, really powerful stuff. But the battle is written. First of all, very well, it's very hard to write battles like that. Uh, there, there's a lot of very famous books that do a poor job. I I don't think, for example, Lord of the Rings does a great job with, its, with it, which is with its large battle scenes and writing it. But Kendara writes this battle scene in a way that is consistent with the genre which is why I found it so powerful that it was all women. She didn't have to change the way that it was written. She didn't have to change the way that she created it because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if it was women or men War is hell. And, <laughs> and that's, 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 that's the reality. I
0: 100% agree. And obviously, that's one of the reasons you're one of the many reasons why you are my co host on genre junkies is because you are a good feminist. And I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate how much you love all the feminist details of this story, because it's so important. And uh, for all the hobbits out there, please direct your hate mail to Scott. Uh, He's the one that just said that thing about lord of the rings <laughs> normally i'm the one that says unpopular incendiary opinions about uh things in pop culture that other people like but uh this time it's all hobbits. Well, Feature your enemy well
1: lord of the rings is brilliant just too late no nope, there's large battle scenes are the large battle scenes leave 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 me wanting
0: <laughs> um where do you think The island is now headed. Trade is now completely open. It's not so much of a dicey little thing. Uh, We know the mainland has kind of moved on. They're not goddess-worshipping. They're more, uh, I don't want to say progressive, but I guess technologically advanced, because they're not progressive. The island's more progressive. But yeah, they're more like advanced in their tech and in their society. They're moving more towards that, you know, kind of Judeo-Christian, masculine, overtoned thing. Um, where do you think the future of Fenburn is? Because Jules says, stuff's going to change.
1: I'm sadly not optimistic for Fenburn. Do they're, you think
0: they're going to be overtaken?
1: I think they're going to be overtaken colonized? by... I don't know if it'll necessarily be colonized by the outsiders, but the the culture of the outsiders is so poisonous to Fenburn's way of life.
0: And not in the fun poisoner way.
1: No. It's... It's antithetical in a lot of ways. Yes. And, you know, (laughs) toxic masculinity is very destructive. And I worry...
0: I I, I hate that shit. It's like battery acid. (laughs) And
1: and I uh, I worry that the attitude like Billy's father will have a place to thrive and grow on the island. And I think the next big battle for Fenburn will really be the battle of the sexes in a way.
0: I think in uh in part I agree with you. I kind of see Fenburn hanging on very true to its identity as a matriarchy. Um I think it will be less, you know, rulers And more of a democracy will spring forth is kind of where I see this going. Um, I do think that it's good that they have some of the modern things of the mainland come in Uh, because they need to lose a little bit of the dogma. They do. And you know I love Fenburn, but they got to loosen up on that stuff. And it needs to be less about faction versus faction versus faction. And I think the people of Fenburn need to stay strong to not be absorbed by Mainlander culture. And I'd like to see some people from Fenburn going to live on the mainland and some Mainlanders coming to live on Fenburn you know, like, whose ideologies kind of match, and we can kind of cross-pollinate and get this open, kind of like how Billy and Arsenal are going to do. Like, we need to share the good sides of both locations. Um, I think there will be a bit of a battle for the sexes thing going on, but I'm a little bit more optimistic than you, because I think that Fenburn is going to teach the mainlanders a thing or two.
1: Well, yeah, that's the other opportunity. That's the other side of the coin is my most optimistic take is maybe the mist wasn't keeping the mainland out. Maybe the mist was keeping the gifts, the goddess, in and condensed. Yeah. Maybe the mist being gone means the the magic, both literally and figuratively, of Fenburn can now propagate into the mainland.
0: I see it, you know, we talked to Kendara last year about, you know, how this all started with bees for her. And I'm seeing this as like our little pollinators going out into the world and pollinating over here and they can send some pollinators for there and we'll we'll cross pollinate and like, this can really work. Um, I have a prediction that should Kendara write other books in this universe, these stories are put to bed. But I would say if this was going to, if any Fenburn adjacent things were going to keep going, because she wrote two great novellas, Yeah, you know, that are, the first one's about the queens and they were little, so it's kind of not really about the queens, but kind of. Um, so she can, there's a lot of subject material in this universe. I would like this to be in the future, not contemporary, but in the future, where Amelia and Jules's daughter is like kind of the president prime minister of Fenburn and she's trying to stay out of the bad politics like maybe this will be like like World War Two kind of is happening on like the mainland And she's trying to keep like the poison out of Fenburn, while also letting Fenburn have some modernity. I don't know. That's my prediction. But the magic's got to stay. The magic's got to flourish. And we got to get the. We got to get the. We got to preach the gospel of the goddess out there to these lame mainlanders.
1: I'll just say this: I, for myself. Hope that Kendara writes many, many more novellas and books that take place in Fenburn. I don't care if it takes place before the events Past, of the present, future. future. I, yeah. I hope that she writes just oodles and oodles. I also hope that she feels, when she feels done with Fenburn, that she's able to walk away from it.
0: We'll still love you. We're still going to read everything else you ever write, girlfriend. It,
1: it's... It's so beautiful as it is and it's so meaningful and I don't ever I hope that she never feels like she has to dip back into this well just because just to make us happy and it will make us happy every single Time,
0: oh, oh we will be pleased
1: <laughs> every single time we'll, we'll read every single one and we'll love it it we can't even really be uh we can't even give reviews to future fen burn books if they exist because at this point all ob- objectivity is out
0: the yeah window. it's just gonna be a love fest love fest straight up um i guess let's kind of give our final little thing here before we go cry Go and cry in the corner about this series. I
1: are we giving our score to this book and the conclusion, or are we giving our score to the series Let's as give a it whole? to the series as a whole. Okay.
0: Um so let's kind of let's kind of wrap this up. Now we hope there will be more in Fenburn. We're open to it, we love it, but let's act as right now as if this is kind of the end of of Fenburn. Um I have sung the praises of this book since before we had a podcast. Uh, that's when I read the first one. I loved it so much. I told Scott, I was like, "You have got to read this book." I told Amanda, "You've got to read this." I told my friend Molly, You've "Got to read this," and they all read it and they've all loved it. And it's taken up a huge space in our lives. Um, this book means a lot to us, as we said. It means a lot to me. You know, kind of a. I'm. I follow kind of a. Goddess worshiping path ish in my life spiritually. And so I really like seeing that in books. That's kind of like, you know, kind of where I am. So I really like seeing that reflection. Um, I love the darkness, the brutality, the horror of this dark fantasy it's a dripping delicious decadent dark fantasy i loved the humor in it i loved the way her characters are so tied into the natural and the supernatural world in their way of lives um I've loved devouring every piece of this rich history she's written for this world. And, I mean, in this series, I have found an author that I just admire her work so much. And, I mean, she's, she's beyond instant buy. Like, I mean, anything she writes, I'm just gonna devour, and maybe I won't love anything every book as much as I love every book, but it's okay because I trust her opinion and her words so much. And for a reader, there's nothing better than to have that relationship with books that it makes it so hard to say goodbye. And I know like in my heart and in my mind, these characters are alive and well, they're living in this alternate universe, they're doing just fine and and everything's going just swimmingly i intend to completely reread these books throughout my entire life boom that's it mic drop <laughs>
1: well there's no score there
0: <laughs> well we can't really score it well i mean it's it's know, five it's stars it's 10 stars it's 15 five million, dark fates five dark fate stars
1: um i agree <laughs> <laughs> wow no i i i try to learn more about feminism And women every day. Uh, I I will always be growing with that. I will always be learning new experiences and trying to understand more. And Kendara is the first author that I've read that really spoke to me and made me think about feminism in a genre related in in a way that relates to me. Mm -hmm. These books don't aren't just. About women, they're not just for women. They're relatable to everyone, and they're meaningful and they're powerful because of it. On top of that, all of that, it's just a ripping good series. It's just it's a great story. It's incredibly inventive. There's really nothing else quite like it out there. Uh, We've we we made comparisons when we first read Three Dark Crowns to The Hunger Games to a number of different stories and it and it's actually different and surpasses all of those things it's a beautiful series it's a brilliant set of characters written by a brilliant author it's it is it is in the esh is in the top echelon of fantasy novels and series i've ever read and i'm really sad to see it go yeah
0: There's going to be a lot of tears shed for a long time about this series, but it still is so worth it. It's that love that you invest in a series like this is just totally worth it. And that's what makes you a bookworm, you know?
1: Book hangovers are real, y'all.
0: Yeah, I'm going to... You know, the the good thing is, is that there's no rest for the wicked. And we got to keep on keeping on because we got a show to produce and we got people and we got books and we got to keep it going. So we're going to, you know gonna cry into our beers for a little bit and you know pick ourselves up by our our bootstraps and somehow go on after this all right so in conclusion Thank you to everybody who's been on this journey with these books with us. There's an awesome community of fans out there for this series. Um, I'm so glad that it's done so well and it is so beloved. It's very well earned. And remember, do your part. And if you know anybody that hasn't read these books, please encourage them to, to give them a try and help us spread the good word and just keep this um keep Kendara's work flourishing and getting to new hands
1: and thank you, Kendara, for being so wonderful to your fans uh so wonderful to us uh joining us twice on the show uh third times a charm th- <laughs> you know you you are you are a treasure to our community, and we appreciate you and thank you
0: all right, everybody. I encourage you to crawl into bed, hide away from the world, cuddle your cuddle your cougar close. Walk back
1: and forth, hugging your legs, sobbing.
0: <laughs> your cougar, your rooster, your snake named Sweetheart, Um, which, by the way, Sweetheart, the true unsung hero of this story.
1: Sweetheart 2, you mean?
0: You, well, yes.
1: Well, the spirit
0: of Sweetheart <laughs> remains. Keep the spirit of Sweetheart in, in your life every day. All year long. <laughs> yeah, all year long. Thank you, guys, and please keep reading past your bedtime.